0: Every American is acutely aware of the issues surrounding our healthcare system. We know miracles can happen, but we find ourselves bombarded by conflicting information and are uncertain of what and whom we can trust. We have some of the best medical care in the world for those who can afford it. Incredible new drugs that change people's lives but can be very costly. Many of the best doctors the world has ever seen, but not all are perfect. That's why Dr. Steve Feldman created the show, Getting Better Health Care, to help walk us through the labyrinth helping us understand how to take better care of ourselves and to better understand the challenges, issues, controversies and complexities of our healthcare system as it exists and as it could be for better healthcare and a better healthcare system. Listen to the doctor. Now, here's Steve.
1: Welcome to Getting Better Healthcare on webtalkradio.net. I'm host of the show Dr. Steve Feldman, founder of the doctorscore.com physician rating website. On our show today, we're going to discuss how you can know that the hospital you're going to is going to give you safe and effective health care. Who's looking out for us? We'll speak about this with Jared Loeb. Dr. Loeb is Executive Vice President for the Division of Quality Measurement and Research at the Joint Commission. The Joint Commission is a private organization that Accredits healthcare organizations. According to their mission, they work to continuously improve health care for the public in collaboration with other stakeholders by evaluating healthcare organizations and inspiring them to excel in providing safe and effective care of the highest quality and value. We'll be speaking with Dr. Loeb about how the Joint Commission measures hospitals. This is a very complicated issue. And we're going to hear his thoughts on specific things you can do to get better health care. Jared, welcome to the program today. Thanks so much for joining us.
2: Thank you, Steve. Glad to be here.
1: Well, people going into a hospital may feel that they don't know what's going to happen there. I'm sure most people have no idea all that goes into making a hospital what it is. How, how can they be assured that they know they're going to get good care at a hospital? Is somebody looking out for them?
2: Uh, great question, Steve. I think there's a, a variety of answers to the question, and and it it really entails um, both federal regulatory as well as private sector um, entities that have um, various roles and responsibilities in terms of assuring high quality and safe health care. And, of course, I, I am speaking to you from the Joint Commission, which is, a healthcare accrediting body indeed the oldest and largest healthcare accreditor in the world we accredit about 17,000 healthcare organizations here in the United States and and we hold organizations to a fairly high level uh, of performance in terms of assessing whether organizations are complying with those kinds of things that we know when done result in the likelihood of a better outcome on the part of patients Clearly, um, whether it be a federal regulatory process or a private sector accrediting process, none of these can guarantee that on any given day in any given healthcare organization uh, that the care that one gets is going to be absolutely stellar. And, And I say that because healthcare is a dynamic human interaction between caregiver and patient, and we all have good days and bad days. But at the end of the day, what we're all hoping for is that the care that's provided is of the highest quality and safest possible care. And that requires a combination of professionalism on the part of the caregiver and oversight on the part of entities like mine uh, that are minding the shop.
1: So you mentioned that some of the um, regulations are federal and there's also private. I take a The Joint Commission is part of the private sector side of accrediting hospitals?
2: That's correct. We are a 501c3, which means we're a not-for-profit organization, been around uh, for over 50 years. Uh, In fact, incorporated in 1951, um, but actually goes back to the um, early 1900s as, uh, as a part of the hospital standardization program, which was formed by the American College of Surgeons way, way back when. So the the Joint Commission really is sort of the uh, the child, if you will, of of what was done back in the early 1900s, um, and and this has all been done in the private sector um, in a manner that, as I said a few moments ago, to the best extent possible, try, <coughs> excuse me, tries to identify what are the most important things that should happen in clinical encounters, whether they be in a hospital, in a nursing home, in a um, uh, behavioral health setting, um, et cetera, because we know that if organizations follow specific standards, that the likelihood of a good outcome is going to be better on the part of its patient or its resident if it's a nursing home or its client if it's a uh, psychiatric facility.
1: So specifically, what are the kinds of things that, is, uh, that are involved in a joint commission accreditation of a hospital?
2: Um, sure, Steve. The the I, I guess we can we can start by hearkening back to where do we get standards from, um, and and what are standards? I guess is 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 probably the the sort of root question here. Um, the Joint Commission over the years has identified um, a series of standards. <coughs> Excuse me. That relate to broad um, areas of activity within healthcare organizations. So, standards relate to such things as continuity of care, human resources, leadership, medication management, infection control, um, and so on. Those are sort of the, the sort of 50,000 foot kinds of, uh, of look sees that exist within our standards. And then within each of these broad areas, as one drills down, Um, we can identify and do identify very specific elements of performance that we expect organizations to follow. And we assess organizations um, in an on-site survey um, uh, against whether they are in fact doing the specific things that are carried within the content of these standards. Now, the standards themselves represent only one piece of a very complex puzzle that we call accreditation. In addition, We do require that organizations that are accredited by the Joint Commission transmit data to us so that we have actual objective data that relate to the care of patients with specific clinical conditions. So it might be patients with heart attacks or heart failure or pneumonia or um, perinatal care, et cetera. So we have very specific... Um, measures of performance, and I'll give you a couple of examples. So, in patients with, with a heart attack, we know on the basis of randomized controlled trial data, that it's important within the first twenty-four hours that a patient, assuming there's no contraindications, no reasons why not to do so, patients receive an aspirin. Uh, same thing at discharge. So, we actually ask organizations to transmit those data to us, and we see monthly data um, transmitted to us on a quarterly basis. Uh, from uh, roughly about 4,100 hospitals in this country. So we have very objective data. Um, and then we have the actual on-site survey process, which, you know, for all intents and purposes, is the validation exercise um, against which the organization's feet um, are, is, are held to the fire regarding compliance with these standards, regarding performance on uh, individual measures, et cetera. And I guess the other piece of this puzzle is that the Joint Commission also promotes transparency because um, using the data that derive from the things I've just talked about, we put into the public domain the results of um, all of that activity in the context of providing uh, information to the various stakeholders regarding um, how the organization has done. Um, In fact, Going back in time to when the Medicare legislation passed in the mid-1960s, the Joint Commission was given something which at that time was called deemed status, which for all intents and purposes means that a hospital that chooses to undertake the rigorous Joint Commission accreditation process was deemed, is deemed, to be in compliance with the Medicare conditions of participation, which is kind of a a fancy way of saying it it complies with the federal regulations that are contained in the Medicare statutes. And roughly about 85 percent of the hospitals choose the Joint Commission's approach to maintain their deemed status, which is um, tantamount to saying uh, their reimbursement from the federal government, which is the bread and butter of American health care, um, if you will, they choose to come to the Joint Commission rather than to go to the federal government, which approaches um, assessment of the conditions of participation in a very different manner than the Joint Commission does. I'll stop there and and, and see if I've hit on any raw nerves for you to no, ask that's, me.
1: That's very helpful. So, I just imagine that if I were ill and being rushed to a hospital that I really wouldn't be thinking about, gee, is this hospital accredited or not? Um, And I don't think I would, when I got there, arrived, when I arrived at at the hospital, I'm not sure I'd be looking around for plaques or information or be asking the people taking care of me, is this an accredited hospital or not? Are are all hospitals accredited or are there some that, that are just flying there by the seat of their pants with nobody looking after them?
2: That's a really, really good question. As as I said a few moments ago, about 84, 85 percent of the hospitals in this country are, in fact, accredited by the Joint Commission. And that represents, importantly, about 96 or so percent of the total hospital beds in the United States. Now, there are hospitals that are operating um, in the United States, oftentimes in rural areas, that are not accredited, but they have an option um, as opposed to coming to the Joint Commission, they can, in fact, utilize their state survey and certification agency, assuming they wish to get Medicare reimbursement, which will assess the organization against the conditions of participation that I spoke of um, earlier. And for the most part, hospitals that are not accredited by the Joint Commission or certified by their state survey agency, which is funded, by the way, um, out of federal dollars, there's very few hospitals left that don't meet uh, one or the other of those criteria. So, you know, you, you, your question about uh, um, an individual who is, you know, perhaps uh, picked up by an ambulance and taken to the local hospital because they have chest pain, um, you know, should they be looking for that certificate on the wall? Well, if they do look, clearly, um, in in most cases they're going to find a Joint Commission um, accreditation certificate hanging on the wall. But I, I think. Um, among the general public, I think people assume that there is oversight for the health care that is provided to them, be it in a hospital setting, be it in a, you know, long-term care setting, in an office-based surgical setting, um, et cetera. But one of the fascinating facts that really hasn't been very much reported, even with all of the interest in um, health care reform in the last uh, decade or so, is that the vast majority of health care that's provided in the United States is not provided in, in uh healthcare settings that have had oversight. So it is important that stakeholders have that question in mind. because so, so, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, you, Jared. If,
1: so when you say the vast majority of care is, is in settings that are not accredited, what settings are you talking about?
2: I'm talking about settings like office-based surgical um, settings, places like that. You know, the, the, the estimate is, and, and, and this may be a, a, a rather mind-boggling figure to, to assimilate, but the estimate is there's probably 180,000 um, settings in the United States in which health care is provided, often high-risk health care, in which there is little, if any, oversight. So, you know, you've got lots of situations in which um, things like cosmetic surgery um, is being performed, um, bariatric surgery is being performed um, with little um, oversight, and, and this is a, sort of an interesting and, I think, unappreciated uh, fact of life in, in healthcare, you know, the, 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 the the vast majority of, of folks out there and and i and I, I dare say that's probably even true within healthcare professional uh, thinking would assume that somebody's watching over over the uh, over the healthcare that's being delivered and and the, the the basic fact is that's not always the case
1: so so if a patient thought they're going to the doctor's office and the doc and, and they're counting on their doctor to be responsible for their care being given you you consider that a situation where there is no oversight.
2: Well, it, I, I'm actually separating out the individual solo practitioner. I'm talking about healthcare that's provided perhaps by a, a, a group of uh, surgeons that uh, that um, um, are doing perhaps cosmetic surgery or, as I said a few moments ago, bariatric surgery, um, where they they've got a, a significant volume of uh, of cases, yet they don't have accreditation. Uh, from any entity, and, and I should point out that the Joint Commission is only one of many, with the oldest and largest, as I said earlier, but there are other um, accreditors that accredit um, office-based surgical facilities, that accredit um, other types of ambulatory health care facilities, but the vast majority of, of um, uh, health care that is provided, and, and I say this exclusive of the single solo practitioner, the family doc, the intern the other, you know, primary care um, areas, um, where there are really little, if any, um, procedures being done, a few, if any, procedures being done, um, the, the vast majority of health care that is, is provided in, in, in those kinds of settings has no oversight. Um, it's interesting to note that the American Medical Association a number of years ago actually tried to bring forward um, an accreditation program for individual physicians um, but couldn't get any traction in doing so. Yep. Um, now, clearly, the boards of medicine, um, under the auspices of the American Board of Medical Specialties, which is the 24 medical specialty boards, have, have realized that um, there needs to be more done, and as a consequence, the concept that's emerged over the last um, number of years is something called maintenance of certification for board-certified uh, specialties, uh, whereby physicians um, need to be engaged to maintain their certification in a whole variety of activities which help assure the stakeholder, that is, you and me as a patient, walking into um, a, a physician's office, an individual physician's office, that you know assure us to the extent possible that uh, the individual physician is keeping up with his or her uh, specialty area. But that's true of, of um, uh, certain of the boards uh, of medicine in particular. Yeah,
1: Jared, you know... Uh, I wonder to what extent our listeners are going to be concerned overly or perhaps not enough. Are there any data to suggest, say, for those cosmetic procedures you're talking about, that they are safer when they're done in a setting that has been accredited as opposed to a setting where the doctor considers themselves responsible for assuring patients' safety?
2: Um, I think, Steve, there's anecdotal evidence to suggest that. I don't think that um, there have been randomized controlled trials, if you will, which would probably be sort of the gold standard because it's it's virtually impossible to conduct those kinds of studies uh, but but certainly um, there have been uh, papers that have appeared over the years that would suggest that the care provided in uh, organizations that are accredited and and it depends on the metric that you choose, of course, but that the care provided in uh, organizations that are accredited um, is um, is of higher quality
1: really you know i'm familiar with data from Florida because I was involved with this research and they were tracking adverse events that occur um, in um, surgical practices um, in accredited offices and unaccredited offices and if there was a Untoward event, it had to be reported. And it turned out, I think, 98 percent of the reports came from the offices of physicians who were board certified. They came from offices that were accredited. Uh, I did not, uh, those data, as uh, certainly they have limitations because they're not randomized controlled trials, didn't suggest that most of the problems were occurring in unaccredited facilities
2: yeah I think one of the one of the problems inherent in the kinds of of um, studies that you're talking about relates to you know sort of this this cultural um, issue that exists in healthcare. you know some some would argue that well you know if if an organization is accredited, we should see fewer adverse events. On the other hand the the antithesis of that statement is that if you create the appropriate culture of safety in which reporting is part of learning, one could also argue that accreditation helps to stimulate the cultural changes necessary to allow for reporting and learning, uh, particularly as it relates to adverse events. So, you know, there's kind of a yin-yang here that makes it very hard to interpret these kinds of, of, um, of studies. And obviously, you know, the the metrics that one uses, you know, you, you could argue and we 've actually got a, a paper in pre in, in that's submitted that has not yet been accepted in which we we actually used data that was available on the federal website hospital compare uh, and and data that we gathered which which contains by the way accredited and non joint commission accredited facilities and we are seeing pretty significant differences in terms of both the level of performance on specific metrics that we utilize, some of which I've mentioned earlier, things like, you know, treatment of patients with acute MIs, patients with heart attacks, if you will, looking at some of the individual measures relating to the use of certain medications, uh, timing for, you know, for cath labs and so on in organizations that are accredited by the Joint Commission and organizations that are not accredited by the Joint Commission, and we are seeing significant differences, but you know that the, those studies are few and far between, and, and part of the problem, of course, is that as, as we talked about earlier, at least in the hospital setting, the vast majority of hospitals are accredited, so it's really hard to sort of do that, you know, that 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 controlled study that we talked about. Sure,
1: you're listening to Getting Better Healthcare on WebTalkRadio.net. I'm Dr. Steve Feldman. We're talking with Dr. Jared Loeb today from the Joint Commission on Hospital Accreditation. Um, Jared, you've mentioned measures now and you mentioned transparency and you mentioned some of the complications of looking at measures. So presumably if we have measures, um, say adverse events that occur, we'd want to look to a hospital that had fewer adverse events, but then we have the problem of, gee, is the better hospital the one that has the culture of reporting and is doing more reporting and capturing the adverse events and learning from them, as opposed to the hospital that's reporting fewer um, adverse events and we're just not capturing them all? That's that's quite the pickle, isn't
2: it? It's a it's an enormous pickle. I I, I totally agree with you, and it, it's a it's a pickle that has. Um, really dogged a lot of the public policy discussions over the last decade or so, particularly um, in the realm of patient safety. Um, you know, we, we publish on our website regularly um, data um, that specifically addresses, if you will, using an aircraft analogy, the crashes that have occurred in healthcare. Things like operations on the wrong patient, wrong body part, wrong procedure, things like medication errors that resulted in significant harm or death, um, things like falls, things like patient suicides in inpatient facilities and so on. And, you know, you track those kinds of events over the course of time, and you can see those data on our, on our website, um, not in an organizational specific manner, but in an aggregate, aggregated fashion. And you sort of sit back and scratch your head and say, well, if the numbers are going up, does that mean things are getting worse? Or... We're better, yeah. Uh, if the numbers are going up, does, does it mean that you know we're creating the cultures in which organizations are beginning to learn uh, from and hopefully um, prevent from happening the kinds of things that have, have happened? And, you know, the, the, the issue of rung site surgery is a great example because we've seen, even though the Joint Commission, along with many of the um, medical societies, both specialty and subspecialty societies, have created all kinds of mechanisms which one would think should be fail-safe mechanisms, yet we've seen the numbers associated with wrong site, wrong patient, um, you know, wrong procedure surgery continue to go up over the years. And, you know, looking at at our experience over the last, um, now, I guess it's some 12 years, we've looked at more than 1,000 cases um, in that one bucket um, of adverse event, and it's You know, when you think about it, while there has been all kinds of strategies developed, including something called the universal protocol, which requires a timeout, it includes marking a surgical site, Um, it includes verifying the patient's identity in in, in a variety of different ways. Yeah,
1: let me stop you for a second. This is something that you would do before a major procedure.
2: That's correct.
1: It's it's kind of like what the pilot does when he starts the plane. Organizations
2: would have a zero-tolerance policy, that is, if someone... If a surgeon um, refused to play by the rules, that the, then, you know, that would be um, a tantamount to saying to that surgeon, um, you know, either you play by the rules or you're out of here. And some organizations have done that, but not all organizations. And, you know, the, the fact that we're seeing the numbers go up, we, we, we do find ourselves in that pickle. These are events that, that have been uh, colloquially described, as I'm quoting here, quote, never events, end quote. These are things... That should never happen because presumably we can put in place the systems and processes that could prevent these kinds of events from occurring. yet we continue to see them. sometimes we see them um, you know in occur in the same way in the same organization on different days. and there's yeah. been all kinds of hypotheses hmm. that have been, uh, brought forward to suggest that, you know, if you do X, you're going to prevent it. If you do Y, you're going to prevent it. And, you know, getting together with all of the key, mindset, the key minds, you know, we've, we and others have created what presumably should be the be-all and end-all mechanisms to preclude these things from happening, yet they don't seem yet to be working to the extent that we'd like. And, you know, we here at the Joint Commission, we talk about creating high reliability in healthcare, I mean, creating high reliability in some of the other um, endeavors that occur in our society, like aviation and nuclear power and the chemical industry, etc. Um, you know, we're we're dealing with with um, uh, accidents that occur few and far between, and that's fortunate because you know we don't think about that when we get on. It. Well, most of us don't think about it when we get on an airplane. It's it's a pretty safe thing to you know to do, but in healthcare, on the other hand, um, you know, depending on whose data you believe. You know the, the the chance of an adverse event occurring in a healthcare organization is is not as small as one would like it to be, sure. which is yeah. why and, yeah. high reliability, you know, as an endeavor in healthcare has been. You know, hard to uh, to come by. We have. Um, uh,
1: well, I'm uh, sorry. You know, I, the, what what you're telling me just reminds me of the the oil rig, the offshore oil oil oh, yeah. rig that, that that just it simply can't fail. There's you know, it's there's too many safeguards you know built in.
2: It can't fail until it does.
1: <laughs> until it does, you know, one of the things you mentioned that there's greater emphasis on now is transparency, uh, and yet when you were talking about the data that you have available, you're presenting it, you said, only in an aggregate fashion, so that you can't actually tell which hospital's providing which data. Is there a reason you can't be more transparent?
2: Oh, no, we're we're transparent to the extent that um, we provide the, the data as to whether the organization is accredited or not accredited. We provide data pertinent to whether the organization is adhering to national patient safety goals and the specific recommendations we make to try to avoid these things from happening. Um, we provide data associated with whether the organization, you know, in, in the particular performance measures that I mentioned a, a, a bit ago, you know, care of patients with heart attacks or heart failure, pneumonia, whatever it happens to be, we provide you know all of those <clears throat> all of those data in, in the public domain on an organizational specific um, basis. And in fact, Anyone who goes to the Joint Commission's website um, can find that information. In fact, you can you can actually download it. You can put it into an Excel spreadsheet if you're a data uh, a person, and you can look at all the hospitals in your particular zip code or whatnot, and you know, and, and do those comparisons. And you know, the- can
1: you tell wrong site surgery? I'm sorry. Can you tell the frequency of wrong site surgery
2: by Not a hospital? Not on an organizational specific no. basis. Okay. You cannot.
1: Okay. Well, you got to protect them from lawsuits, I guess.
2: Well, I, you know I think that's part of it, but, but it also relates to creating you know the learning culture that uh, that we talked about um, um, a bit ago these These are obviously very sensitive kinds of issues I, I, I certainly would argue that an individual who is um, going into an organization into a hospital for an elective um, procedure um, th- these are perfectly reasonable questions for an individual um it, you know to ask of of their surgeon to ask of uh, you know of the hospital administration um sure. you know at 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 a, at a, at a spe- you know within a, a specific hospital so uh,
1: i i think what i hear you saying is that there's a balance between privacy and which which encourages uh hospitals to report and to track um versus transparency which might scare hospitals off from doing the tracking and reporting that they need to do to become better at what they're doing.
2: Precisely. I think you've, you've articulated it beautifully. Yeah. You, and, know, you know, we do provide the, the statistics, as I mentioned earlier, regarding sentinel events and the Joint Commission, if an individual patient is interested in um, um, confirming whether a particular sentinel event occurred within an organization, they can call us um, or write to us and we will answer those questions on a on a one by one basis this
1: this is this is very familiar territory i started one of the online doctor rating websites doctorscore.com and patients can give their doctor an overall score and and rate certain subscores and put in open comments and we chose not to make those open comments public but to give those open comments to the doctor and Think, thinking there's a, a level of, of, of balance here, you want the, to encourage doctors to have their patients do online rating and to, to make their scores transparent to the public. And at the same time, there might be open things that would be too sensitive um, for the public um, that, that some doctors may not want the public to see. But interestingly... The truly top doctors, some of them have said, I want my open comments to be public. I I want to be totally transparent so that people get to see how good a job I'm really doing. Do do you foresee hospitals getting to the point of saying to you, listen, you're collecting all this data on us. Make it open to the public so that they can see that we are really providing the absolute highest standards of, of safety and care here at our facility.
2: I think hospitals are beginning to do that on an ad hoc basis. You can you can um, check around. Hospitals here, there, and elsewhere across this country are beginning to themselves realize, much as as I think you've just suggested on the part of individual physicians, they've realized that um, we're in a very different world today, and 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 putting those data out into the public domain um, is in fact beneficial, um, and and we're seeing you know increasingly um, those kinds of data being made public, but. I, I guess I would draw a line in the sand a bit here, and, and it's a line in the sand that I would call caveat emptor, buyer beware. And the reason I say that is you can turn to a plethora of websites now that purport to provide information about individual physicians, um, about um, health care facilities, et cetera, and you can potentially look at 6, 8, 10, 12 different websites that rate the same physician or the same hospital and see lots of different uh, data uh, there. And hospitals, some in some cases, will come up at the top of the ranking. In other cases, they'll be in the middle of the ranking. In other cases, they'll be in the bottom of the ranking. And, and you'll flip to a different website, and you'll see completely different data for the same hospital. So one has to be very careful that what you're looking at in terms of um, uh, healthcare data is and, and the word I think that we've used a few times now is transparent that the methodology behind how these ratings are, and I'll use a strong word here, concocted um, are in fact um, credible uh, because you can you can find all kinds of websites that purport to provide um, crystal clear data but there's a black box behind it and, and one doesn't always know what's in that black box so one has to be um, fairly careful in that we live in an era of transparency that the information that you're getting is, is going to be credible information. I, I've got an analogy that I use oftentimes, and it's perhaps a bit out there, but I, I think it makes the case, and that is, you know, you can take a picture of Old Faithful when it is not erupting, um, and it looks like a hole in the ground. Um, or you can take a picture of Old Faithful from the exact same vantage point when it's erupting, and it's got a beautiful, you know, geyser. Um, so the photograph that one takes is, you know, you, you, <laughs> it's all in the eyes of the beholder what one sees, and, and one needs to be careful. And and I guess along that same realm, uh, you know, from a um, healthcare um, consumer perspective, um, when you see data from an organization or from an individual physician about the care of patients with, you know, disease X or Y or Z, one shouldn't infer, for example, that um, organizations that do wonderfully with, and I'll make up a a, a scenario here, do wonderfully with, you know, patients that have heart attacks um, are necessarily going to do equally well in treating patients that have um, brain tumors or will do equally well in terms of patients who are coming in for total hip or knee replacement.
1: Yeah, I mean, that, that's a good point. You know, one other uh, critical issue that we have not discussed is the phenomenon of cherry-picking. So, for example, let's say you're going to focus on um, something that really matters to people. Are you going to survive your heart attack if you go to this particular hospital? And you find that, okay, one hospital, you have a much better chance of surviving your heart attack. Another hospital, maybe it's an academic center, uh, you have a lower chance of surviving your heart attack. One of the problems you could run into is that maybe all the sickest patients get sent to that academic hospital, and they're really doing a better job even though their, their measure, their number looks off. How do you, how do you deal with something like that?
2: Yeah, and and, and I guess, you know, this is an age-old question. It's how do you level that playing field? How do you adjust for the fact that um, a tertiary care center may indeed, as you suggest, be seeing patients that are sicker and and that have a higher likelihood of not doing as well because they've, you know, it's not just that they're coming in with a heart attack, it's that they're coming in with a heart attack, they're overweight, they're hypertensive, and they have coexisting diabetes, Um, and, and thus... Um, you know, assuming that surgery is in the offing for that patient, the likelihood of that patient having a good outcome is probably a little less spectacular than the likelihood of someone who has none of those coexisting conditions um, coming into that same hospital. Now, over the years, there have been techniques devised by statisticians called risk adjustment techniques, um, which presumably can help, and I, I emphasize that they don't entirely eliminate, but that can help um, to level that playing field and essentially account for what the patient brings to the clinical encounter over which the healthcare provider has no control. Now, you know, you can put 10 biostatisticians in a room and there'll be 11 opinions as to, you know, exactly what the right statistical formula is to do that, and, and that's without bringing the clinicians into the room. Then you bring the clinicians into the room and they say, no, 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 um, you know, my, my gestalt is that a patient that has X and Y and Z almost never does as well as a patient that has A, B and C? So the likelihood of a better outcome here is not going to be as great. So you know, when 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 you're graded as a hospital or as a physician, and the grades are posted on the classroom door, I think the temptation to do that cherry picking that you spoke of um, is absolutely there. Uh, you know, I I won't deny for a moment that that's the case. But if you use as an example what New York State did back in the um, early 1990s, which is to begin publishing surgeon-specific coronary bypass mortality rates and doing so in a risk-adjusted manner so that um, individual surgeons that were willing to accept higher-risk patients were not punished for accepting higher-risk patients, what that ultimately did was to improve the quality of all cardiac surgeons in the state of New York because everyone learned from these data. So, you know, we walk a fine line here between um, arguing on the one hand that we want to avoid the cherry-picking and on the other hand arguing that sometimes a patient that has higher risk is potentially going to hurt the physician or the organization if he or she accepts that patient because of this era of transparency. So, you know, these are fascinating public policy questions, and they're oftentimes great questions to think about when you're not in dire need of health care. In other words, the time to ask the question is not when the ambulance um, you know the paramedics uh, determine that you have had that heart attack, and you can go to hospital A or B, and you start debating with the paramedic. Well, I, I read about hospital A, and I read about hospital B, and mm-hmm. I want to go to A, even though B may be closer. So it's 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 a fine line,
1: Jared. In our in our last time here, uh, I'm just wondering: Do you have any specific suggestions you have for our listeners how to make sure they're getting they're going to have a great healthcare experience?
2: Uh, well, um, perhaps uh, first and foremost, I, I think that accreditation has been a secret um, for many years, and I think it would be um, appropriate for an individual patient to ask when he or she is entering a healthcare care system, be it a hospital, be it a home care, be it, uh, you know, behavioral health care, ambulatory care, whatnot, are you accredited? Um, can you help me to understand what you're doing in the context of trying to improve the quality do you make certain of your data um, public? Do you put it into the public domain? Um, uh, I think those are perfectly fair questions to ask. Similarly, I would ask a physician, um, are you board certified? If, and, and I know, Steve, you're a dermatologist. And, you know, I mean, I think that's a perfectly reasonable question for a patient to ask that comes into your office. Um, and it's similarly perfectly reasonable when you walk into the hospital to ask about accreditation or into the – you know, into the um, um, office-based surgical facility, are you accredited? Um, I, I think it's, it's been underappreciated as a mechanism to help reduce the risk of bad things happening. I mean, at the end of the day, our mantra here at the Joint Commission is, is essentially that all people everywhere in healthcare experience the safest, high-quality, best-value health care across all settings. Um, And that's true, by the way, in the United States and that's true internationally because, as you probably know, we do increasingly have um, a a series of hospitals that we've been accrediting outside the United States. There's about 330 of them, and particularly with medical travel, sometimes called medical tourism, um, these are absolutely crucial questions for people to be asking, particularly if you're paying out of pocket. And, you know, and and in in, in this environment, and and hopefully some of this will change with the health care reform legislation, but we still have, you know, tens of millions of people that don't have health care insurance, and oftentimes they are going offshore for their health care because they know they can get it cheaper. But, um, you know, here, too, caveat emptor, buyer beware, is a a really important point, and I would certainly uh, suggest that outside the United States that's even a more important question to ask, ask than it is in the U.S.
1: Jared? Um, thank you so much for being on the show today, and thank you and your colleagues for being on the lookout for the rest of us, for making sure hospitals, uh, making sure that when we visit a hospital, we're going to have a great experience.
2: Steve, it's been a pleasure.
1: Dr. Loeb is a passionate advocate for patients' well being, for assuring the quality of services that patients get in the healthcare system, assuring that quality is a very, very complicated issue. The Joint Commission accredits centers based on the best criteria they can find, and they're continuously working to enhance the questions they're asking, the data they're collecting, adjusting the data, but it's really not a very straightforward process. Those of us who like the idea of having somebody looking out for us should be very thankful uh, for the Joint Commission and their work, but still, there's no guarantees. Um, as Dr. Loeb mentioned at the beginning, you can strive for the best possible system, but like a lot of things in life, healthcare is a is a personal affair, and as of yet, things just can't be a hundred percent uniform and perfect. As as we've seen, as as safe as offshore drilling is, mistakes and problems sometimes happen. What is the bottom line for us right now? I'll tell you. My sense is you have to have trust in your doctor. You have to have a doctor you trust. Um, as Dr. Loeb mentioned, you know, you'll look at a, a single... Hospital, and, and you look at their scores, and different rating systems give them different scores. Different people give them different impressions. The same is true we, we find on the, on the doctorscore.com uh, physician rating website. Some people have a great experience, other people, you know, would rate their doctor very differently. Bottom line your relationship with your doctor is very special you need to have a relationship in which you have trust. I think your doctor looking out for your best interests is one of the ways you'll make sure that the hospital, the other physicians you see, the other other situations you find yourselves in, um, if they're recommended to you by a physician you trust, um, that may be as good as an assurance as our system can currently give us. Uh, we've seen with other efforts at accreditation that there's, there's all sorts of potential problems that you measure one thing, you may be really good at that, but you may not be good at the things you're not measuring. Um, the fact that measurements are being done might cause people to avoid patients who might give them a low score. I don't see doctors doing that, but per, it seems to be documented at, at the system level. So find a doctor you trust, stick with them. Establish that relationship. Um, get involved in in, in in doctor rating as well. Uh, the more transparency we have, the more information we have out there, the better. Well, thank you for joining us on Getting Better healthcare. Our theme music is by the incomparable Michael Zioli. Until we meet again, I wish you a
0: happy and healthy week. Thanks for listening to the show today. Remember to go to DrScore.com to get and give feedback about your doctor and to read others' recommendations about doctors in your area. It's a way to choose your path to healthcare empowerment. That's D-R-S-C-O-R-E.com, DrScore.com. And we'll see you next week right here on Getting Better Health Care.